Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you. We're in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6 tonight. And uh, this is one of the powerful chapters out of the book of Isaiah. Um, As you'll see, we'll be in this book for quite a while. There's 66 chapters, I think, in Isaiah. The title of the message, pretty serious, when God's patience runs out. You do know that it does run out at times. We'll see it very clearly tonight. His grace and his patience runs out. For the believer, it's a little bit different, and we'll talk about that as we go along. But um, well, let's just ask the Lord to open up his word to us. So Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and ask that you would just break it open as the bread of life and feed our soul. Speak to our heart, Lord. Give us hope. Make your word clear. May we just get even the slightest glimpse of what Isaiah saw when he saw you high and lifted up in your temple um, in a vision. May we just get just a sense of your grace and your power in our life. We turn to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, um, God's grace, as we'll see tonight, does run out. He's very, very patient. We read in the New Testament that, that his mercy and his kindness is what holds back his wrath for those that need to come to Christ. But as you'll see in the Old Testament and in the future, when we talk judgment, there is a day when it's too late for those who will not bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, For centuries, in the book of Isaiah, we'll see that for centuries, God as their bride, the chosen race's bride, loved them, forgave them, encouraged them, walked with them through centuries of rebellion. And he kept taking them back and giving them another chance. The book of Hosea, uh, Hosea was a prophet, a minor prophet. Um, God actually asked him to marry a woman who was a prostitute. The Lord knew that she was a prostitute and had those uh, traits about her and immorality about her, but he wanted to teach Israel a lesson about his love. So he actually commanded Hosea to marry this woman. And it wasn't long after they were married that she followed her appetites and instincts and started sleeping around in adulterous ways again. And God said to Hosea, this is a message that I want you to teach my people. My people, the Jews, the chosen race. Just as they have been adulterous to me spiritually, as your wife has done you, I will love them back, and you're to love her back, despite what she's done as a lesson for my people. And so the Lord has always been gracious. When he could have said centuries prior to this, enough is enough. I'm done. He didn't very kind. He carried, we're told in the Old Testament, that he carried his people who were in bondage in Egypt out into the wilderness as his bride. He loved her and freed her from slavery and abuse. And yet it wasn't very long, maybe a month, 
a month into the wilderness on their way to the promised land where Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and while he was up there, he was taking too long and their restless, rebellious hearts took the gold that God told them to take from the Egyptians when he took them out of Egypt to use for his future tabernacle and temple, and instead they melted it down and made a golden calf. Idolatry. Something to worship other than the one that loved them. And so he gave and gave and gave and gave. Have you ever had a person in your life that you love deeply? Couldn't love them any more than you did. And they wanted none of it. Didn't want anything to do with you. Despite your tears, your pleas, your gifts, your love, your sacrifice. And they wanted none of it. Well, that just gives you a little sense, just a molecule of sense of God's heart that was refused and broken over and over and over again. And finally, his patience ran out. Now, just turn back to chapter one. I did this the last time I taught on Isaiah because it just is a glimpse of how reasonable and how kind um, and negotiable, if you will, the Lord was for his, well, the Bible calls them stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked in the King James. Chapter 1, verse uh, 18 to 20 is classic. It's a picture of the book of Isaiah in a nutshell. God says to his people through Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient... You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now, is there anything unjust, unkind, or judgmental in what the Lord is offering? Sounds like an option to me. You can go right, you can go left. You can believe and repent or you can hold me at an arm's distance and worship false gods. The bottom line is it's up to you is what he's telling his people. I mean, he gave them an option and they didn't take it. Okay, let's go back to chapter six. The Lord doesn't force his people to love him. He doesn't make us love him. Now I will say this. If he has called you to be his and uh, you hold back I've mentioned this before. It's like the old painting that we, it's called Jesus knocking on the door in the garden. And it was in the 60s, a painting, and Jesus is standing at a door knocking, and uh, it's referring to our heart, the picture is. And the suggestion is that God is a gentleman, and he is in asking us to invite him into our heart. There's no handle on the outside of the door. That's purposeful. Because we have to open it from the inside. And it's a lovely picture. 
It's just not theologically accurate. He calls us and chooses us to be his own. And if we don't open the door to him, which we never do on our own anyway, it's because of his grace that we even know what door to open. He will kick the door down and come in and grab you and take you out. Thank you very much, because we belong to him. But that's different than forcing us to love him. And so he tried to woo his bride. She wanted nothing to do with it. Um, when I came to Christ many, many years ago, one of the men responsible for helping me, I've mentioned him before as well, was an ex-convict. He had tattoos on his arm when they weren't even arms, when they weren't even, you know, popular. And he was a, a, a in jail for a year for attempted manslaughter. And he got out of jail and he gave his life to Christ. And uh, he happened to be one of the engineers in the Transamerica building where I did valet parking. And he was a big dude and I ran into him like I ran into a wall one day and he he did force me to listen about Jesus, and I had no problem with it. <laughs> it was like, you will listen to the gospel, and you will listen to Jesus, and you will like it, okay? Yes, Frank. I call him a modern-day gladiator. He, had, uh, he and his wife, Midge, had two little girls, and, and his first daughter um, was named Deborah. And he said, you know, when I came to Christ, I really didn't understand the full impact of the love that he had for me until we had Deborah. And he goes, I just learned something so powerful. I was holding her one day, and I loved her so much, and she just took her tiny little ruby red lips that were all wet, and she planted them right on my cheek as if it was a kiss, and it just dripped down my face, and I sobbed. It was the first time that made sense to me that her love was freely given. I didn't force her to do it. And that's the love that Christ wants from us. Freely given, not forced, from the heart. But we can't do it without his help. You already know that. Okay, let's look at uh, verse 1. Very powerful chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Now before we go any further, we need to see who this King Uzziah is because it's really good background for us. He was one of the more noble, gracious, obedient kings to a point. And he died this very year, and I'll explain why that's so significant, but I want you to look at his life for a minute. So um, go to Second Chronicles, which would be towards the front of the Bible, or in the middle of the Bible, close to the middle of the Bible. Second Chronicles, chapter 26. And we're going to read why this is so significant that the year this king died was the year that God gave Isaiah this revelation of what he's going to do with his people. So uh, in the beginning of 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we read of all of the wonderful things. Well, I'll just take a, a moment to read a little about some of the things Uzziah did and why he was so famous initially. Um, the people of Judah took Uzziah when he was only 16, year old, 16 years old and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Uh, verse 3, Uzziah was 16 year old when he began to reign and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. 52 years he was the king, starting at 16. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. Now, as you read through the kings in the book of Kings and Chronicles, there was 43, I think, and only three 
did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Three. And he was one of them. At least to begin with. And uh, we read in verse 5, he set himself to seek God, and he was 16, gang. This proves that 16-year-olds can seek God with all their heart, huh? He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, that was the priest, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. What did he have to do to prosper? Seek the Lord with all of his heart. As long as he did that, he was one of the greatest kings that God ever called into that position. Verse, uh, let's go over to, let's go down to verse 11. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and so on. Verse 12, the whole number of the heads of the father's house of mighty men were 2,600. So he had some of the mightiest warriors in the world, 2,600 of them. Verse 14, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats, mails, bows, stones, slings. In Jerusalem, he made engines. So they had technical equipment in those days, probably warfare things like you know, spears and bows that went automatically very, very far, that kind of thing. He was brilliant. He was a builder, major builder. By skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. And it's like when he got really strong, that's when his problems began. Look at the next verse. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. I might have mentioned this to you recently. I did at another church not long ago. There's, in Proverbs, there's seven sins that God hates. Number one, pride. Pride. This was Uzziah's problem. He had wealth can make you pride. The love of money is the root of all evil. He had a kingdom. He had servants. He had brains. He had God's blessing and prosperity. He had mighty armies, and it got to his head. And he became too proud, and it led to his destruction. And I just had a little example of that tonight before the service started. You see this microphone I'm wearing right here? It's a, well, they used to call it a lapel mic. They call it a head mic, huh? Uh, my buddy back there, Demian. Head mic, I think they call it. Anyhow, I've been doing this a long time, okay? It's taken me, I've been at trail 11 years, and it's taken me almost all of 11 years to figure this thing out on how to put it on my ears. Almost 11 years, Demian will tell you. And so for the last two months, I've nailed it every time. And so I told him, I said, I got this down now. And uh, I want to put it on. It was completely backwards, and the microphone was over here. And I thought of Uzziah. Don't get too comfortable and proud with what you have, who you are, how you look, or what you know. Because pride goes before a fall, always. When he got proud, it led to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. They were not only priests, but they were warriors. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. 
Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will be brought you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. People that are proud, that hold authority positions, where someone tells them what to do, anger, selfishness, pride. He was angry at 80 priests who were to be the ones God wanted to do incense. Kings couldn't do that. That wasn't his temple. It was God's temple. Now, he had a censer in his hand. He was so angry. You know, you know how some people get so angry they throw things and break things like adolescent children do sometimes. Now, he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Like instant leprosy. Marred, rotting skin appeared on his forehead instantly. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being leper, lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. So this man here, who had everything, one of the three of the greatest kings, kind of a principle for all of us, it's not how you begin, it's how you end. It's how you end in the Lord, not how you begin. Um, we have any golfers in here? I'm a golfer wannabe. We got this one over here. I might need lessons from you sometime, my friend. Back here? Who? Kelly? Kelly a little bit? Okay, well, there's a phrase, you know, when you golf, you go to the hole number one, and, and that's a real important hole because it's usually really far, and, you know, that's your first drive when you hit it. And uh, so there's a phrase that says you don't pay off on the drive. In other words... You know, there's usually, well, there's nine holes or 16 holes, to play, or 18 holes, depending on what you want to play. And so usually the first hole can determine how good you're going to do that game. And so if you hit the golf ball way, way, way down, and it, you get a hole in one, well, first of all, you get a trophy or something, or at least recognition for a free lunch or something, but you never forget it. But that has nothing to do with how you play the rest of the game. So you don't, it doesn't matter if you get a hole in one. What matters is, what do you get on the last hole and what's your score? Same thing spiritually. You might have started off in a whirlwind in your faith. What really matters is how do you end up? Uzziah started off at 16 as one of the greatest kings that ever lived, and he loved the Lord, and he followed the priest's advice and gave everything over. But then he got proud, and he died a horrible death alone. So that's the first principle. Um, now, why does Isaiah say it was in the year that King Uzziah died. It's because God is turning the purposes in the corner of his people, as well as Isaiah as a prophet. Up to that point, to Isaiah's death, there was great blessing and prosperity in the land. But now his patience has run out, and they're going to enter a season of darkness. It is an end for Isaiah and God's people. It is an end of the era. 
the blessing and the prosperity that Uzziah once brought is over and now it's judgment time. The clock starts ticking. It was that very year that there's going to be a change and the sentence of his people is going to start to be realized. However, where there's judgment, there's always grace. And where there's grace, there's also judgment. They kind of go hand in hand. Jesus came full of grace and truth. God is a God of mercy and love and compassion, but he's also a God of judgment for those who reject his son. The terms we put it in this day. So it was the end of an era. We find that it's going to get very, very dark, and it starts in this chapter, and more actually in chapter 7 through 12. And we really look forward to that. So in the days of the king Uzziah, who had a proud heart and died a leprous death, because of his rebellion, Isaiah catches a vision of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, whose eternal, loving, and perfect in all of his ways. It's like down with those who are frail, faulty rulers. And now, Isaiah, I want you to look at me. Let's go back to chapter 1. Or chapter 6, excuse me. In the king that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, he's getting, he has a vision here. I saw the Lord. That is the Lord. The Savior. The creator of the world the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign one who with even a word flung the stars into the heavens, the author of life and death. He said, I saw that Lord. Now he couldn't see everything about him because we read in the Old Testament that no man can see the Lord face to face and live because his glorious radiance, and we're very limited in our thinking about this, but all we know is because he's so powerful and holy and glorious and radiant that our feeble heart and minds would die instantly. So no man has seen the Lord. But somehow in this vision that I'm sure was tempered, really tempered and shaded, for Isaiah's mind, he saw enough that it didn't kill him. He said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and the throne of the kings always had stair steps up to the throne. They sat high and above their subjects and everyone else. He said, I saw this vision, whether it was a temple coming down from heaven or the temple, the live temple in Jerusalem, we don't really know. We just know that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, above all kings, above all peoples, above the universe. You don't get higher than the king of kings. By the way, a little sidebar of hope here. Maybe you might see it as hopeful. Do you realize in the Old Testament we read that it is God that raises up kings and all high authorities for the world? It is God that allows them to be in their positions, and it is God that takes them down out of their positions. 
This is God's world. He determines. He brings them up. He takes them down. Because all kings are under his authority. And he says, uh, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I do a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings in my life as a pastor. A lot of weddings. And, you know, uh, brides these days wear all different kinds of wedding dresses. But in the maybe the little bit older days, they used to have really, really long trains. And, you know, I would always tell the, the maid of honor that, you know, if, if she's going to uh, do a communion or light candles or do this, be sure you guide her along because so that, you know, you just got to do all that. Just do all that. And uh, so that I get the, the vision of this glorious robe that the king of kings wears high and lifted up and the train of his robe going down those steps around the table, filling the temple with his authority and sovereignty. And listen to this. And above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and we'll stop right there. So seraphim literally means burning ones. So these are angelic beings that hovered above the Lord or around the Lord in the temple, they never stopped moving. The burning ones reflected the glory and the brilliance of the Lord. That's why they were called the fiery ones. Because they hovered in his presence. Waiting for his command. And so there they are. And it says, look at the next verse, and one of them, verse three, called to another one, one of them. It's supposed, by the way, that there was thousands because of you, as you read in Revelation, when it talks about angelic host or seraphim, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands in the presence of the Lord. This is just one of them calling to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Three times. Is it too warm in here or is it just me? It's perfect? Okay, well, okay. Okay. Maybe it's because I'm talking about the fiery ones. I'm just getting a little, okay. Holy, holy, holy. Some commentators say that represented the Trinity. For sure it means emphasis. An emphasis on the beauty and the purity of the King of Kings. He's holy. We're told that because of Christ, we're made holy. Because we're in Christ. We are the priesthood. We are in Christ and we're holy, but only because of Christ. Now, I got a little pet peeve that I've had as a pastor through the years. And I think people have said this in jest or trying to be funny, and maybe a couple of them were serious, but it's when they have called me reverend. Reverend. I don't like the reverend because reverend means most holy. And I definitely am not most holy. The only one that's most holy is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's holy. And because of what he's done in our life, 
He has set us apart and sanctified us, meaning he's made us holy because of him. And because of him, we will be able to see God face to face someday in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. Now listen to this. This is just one angelic being, only one, that's talking to another one and listen what happens when he spoke to this other angelic being. Look at it. And the foundations of the thresholds, the thresholds, I'm taking the, that to mean the foundations of the temple, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Just the voice, the worshiping voice of one angelic creature shook the foundation of God's temple and it was filled with smoke. What would it be if God raised his voice? There was an earthquake. An earthquake always suggests the presence of God in the scripture. And smoke suggests that people are kept back from him and can't see him. The smoke, because he's too holy. One voice, power of God, the holiness of God. And you know, sometimes we run into non-believers and they could give a rip. I've had some unbelievers tell me when I talk to them about eternal life, I'll be happier in hell because all my friends are going to be there. Ha, ha, ha. You have no idea who you're talking to or about. Our God is a consuming fire. That's one of his titles in Hebrews. The Hebrew writer said our God is a consuming fire to those who reject his son. And these guys, ha, 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 be with my friends. Oh, yeah, you will. It's interesting because as the angelic hosts fluttered around, they covered their face in sheer humility of the holiness of God. They worshiped, they served but they humbly covered their face. Opposite King Uzziah, that thought too much of himself and died of leprosy alone. Um, the next part is just amazing. So these angelic creatures are singing holy, holy, holy. There's smoke everywhere. The foundation of the entire temple is shaken under a magic, a, a monstrous earthquake. I'm from San Francisco. I remember earthquakes when I was three, sitting in the living room watching the lamps fall off the table. Scared me to death. Earthquakes. And look what Isaiah does. He's God's chosen prophet. He gets a glimpse of the purity and the love and the power of the God he serves. And look what he says. Verse five. And I said, woe is me. Like it's all over for me. I'm done. I can't stand in front of this pure God. My heart is wicked. My mouth is full of iniquity. Isaiah had a powerful view when compared to the glory of God as to how wicked he was, how sinful and broken and destined he was. He says, woe is me. For I'm lost. I'm lost. 
I'll never be found. I'm judged and condemned the rest of my life just with one look at the purity of God. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king and glory, Lord of hosts. And so one flash of the holiness and the beauty of God and he is reduced to torment, terror, and very, very clear as to the immorality of his life. That fast. It's like, you know, when it, going to the snow. My wife and I went snowshoeing last year. It was beautiful, up at Clear Lake. Nice trip to go on, by the way. And, you know, the snow was uh, like powder. And, and I remember I, was, I had a white T-shirt, or I had something white on me, and I compared it to the snow, and it looked yellow. You see, our holiness compared to God is tainted and dingy. And when he looked at the Lord, he said, I'm done. It's over for me. And he repented. He humbled himself before the Lord. He goes, woe is me. I'm lost. And there's nothing pure about me. Now, when he says I'm a man of unclean lips, lips was always a referent to our heart. So what he's saying is, my heart is desperately wicked. So lips refers to the heart. Jesus said, out of the abundant of the heart, the what? Mouth speaks. And if you need more proof on that, just read the book of James, and we really need the Lord to help us with our tongue. James says, no man can tame the tongue. It reveals our heart. So if you, if you uh, really want to get an idea of your spiritual condition, if I really want to get a good snapshot, let's say the next year, you know, January 1, baby, we're going to be strong in the Lord like we've never been before. And if you got to test yourself, if you want to test the condition of your heart, weigh the words out of your mouth, and that's the best test, the most accurate test you can have. So that's what he says. I'm a man of unclean lips means my heart, Lord, is not right. You have every right as our king to judge me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and then he does something else. He goes, and I live among my people who also have unclean lips. In other words, he was not set apart. He is saying, I'm as guilty and as wicked as the people that you're going to judge. I'm one of them. And by the way, you know how toxic our culture is. The only difference between you and I and the people who reject Christ that live in the culture and shake their fist in his face, the only difference between you and I is the Lord Jesus Christ has saved our life. That's the only difference. But you take Christ out of the um, equation and we're just as guilty and just as vile as the people that reject Christ in our culture. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm one of them. The people that you're going to judge, I'm one of them, Lord. And then it gets really good. Then, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me. So the picture that I got is, um, you know, fighter jets, that, you know, they have a series, they, they have the route that they're going, all of a sudden one peels away. 
I see the seraphim going, going around the throne, the throne, all of a sudden he peels away and he goes right towards Isaiah. It's like, Eow. Only he approaches Isaiah with a metal tongue from the altar. Now the altar was a place of sacrifice. That's where they, in those days, would sacrifice animals and take the shed blood of the animal, and there would be a day of atonement once a year for the forgiveness of all of God's people in that particular year. So the coals were the burning of the sacrifice. So Isaiah is brought to this temple to where the sacrifices are made and an angel takes one of the coals that kept the fire hot for the sacrifice that would bring people forgiveness from Jehovah God and he picked it up by the tongs. Let's read what he does next. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. First he said, I'm a man of an unclean heart. Woe is me, I deserve destruction like the people I'm prophesying to. I deserve it. And God sends one of his angels... Isaiah doesn't ask for this. He's done in his mind. He sends one of the angels to pick up a coal that represents the sacrifice for sin. And he touches Isaiah's lips. It doesn't burn him. But it sets a fire in his heart. God gives him a new heart. Just like he did you and I. He gave us a new heart. And I know, at least for me, when he gave me a new heart, I woke up in the morning and everything looked different. The green leaves were greener. The blue sky was bluer. The birds' music was louder. Everything was bright. I was born again, just like you. And so he touches his lips and he's given a new heart like that immediately. A new heart. But he didn't choose God. God sent the seraphim to him. He didn't know that he even could go to God in the wreck of a person that he was. But God in his grace went to him. And part of the reason is he's getting ready to send Isaiah out on the prophetic tour of a lifetime. Usually prophets preached God's word and gave encouragement and hope. Not this time, as we'll see in a moment. God's patience has run out. Now he's going to be a prophet of doom. But before we go there, look at this. By the way, uh, just a question. I'm reading here, he received the same grace and forgiveness you and I did. His came in a pretty unique, colorful way, but it's the same grace and forgiveness you and I received, and God gave us a new heart. But look at that phrase in verse 7. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for or covered. So, if our guilt is taken away, and our sin is miraculously atoned for because of what Christ did on Calvary's cross for us, and he said it was finished and done and our sin was paid for, why do we still feel guilty? Something's wrong here. I don't think the Lord wants us to live in a life of shame anymore. This is the proof text right here. I mean, there's other proof texts, but this is one of them. He said, I've taken 
your guilt away and your sin is covered. So it might be a time for us to just reflect a little bit and go, Lord, I'm still carrying some baggage. I still have nightmares sometimes and I don't feel I'm worthy. Well, it's true, you're not, neither am I, but because of Christ we are. We are worthy because of Christ. Don't insult Christ. Don't insult him by saying you're not worthy because of him we're worthy. He paid a tremendous price for us. He doesn't want us to walk in shame. That is the accuser of the brother messing with your head. I'm telling you, he wants us to walk in victory of his grace because it's fresh and new every morning, gang. Every morning, it's fresh and new. Then look what happens. So he's totally a new person. He's got a new heart. And I heard the voice of the Lord, verse 8, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? In other words, in the courts of heaven here, with my angelic host, who can I send to my people to bear this message that they're going to hear about judgment? But Isaiah didn't know that at this point. And he said what I would expect him to say. Send me. He doesn't even know what the task is yet. You know, when the Lord Jesus steps into our broken lives and we know how undeserving we are, we still can't believe that he's done it to begin with. And he steps into our life and we don't feel judged by him and we don't feel condemned by him. We feel convicted appropriately when we need to be. And then he lifts the guilt and shame from us again. And this goes on on and on. And he's the groom and we're the bride. Why wouldn't we follow him anywhere? Why wouldn't Isaiah say, send me, and he doesn't even know what the task is yet? Man, he stepped into our life. I couldn't imagine any of us with his grace going back. To what? The vomit? Like James or Peter says? Like a dog going back to the vomit? To what? The pig pen, like the pigs go back to the mud? Oh, no. He's the lover of our soul, folks. Life's not worth living without him. He speaks to us with the voice of many waters. He's so tender to us. So gracious. So kind. I love what Max Lucado says about the Lord Jesus, and this is true. Apparently, he remembered a time in his life that wasn't good. And he said, when no one would give me the time of day, Jesus gave me the time of my life. Who wouldn't say to the Lord, I'm going where you're going? Period. We know so little. And we're so finite in many ways. His guilt is gone. He doesn't even know what he's going to do be doing. You know, one look at Christ, some of this is conjecture, but I think it would bear out. One look at Christ, Mary, Mary of Magdalene was possessed with seven demons and was very immoral. One look at Jesus. She goes in. I get my stories mixed up, but she was one, the one that either fell at his feet and wiped his dirty feet 
with her tears and her hair. One look at Christ, that's all it takes. And she, followed, she was at the tomb. When the men were hiding in the room, she was at the tomb. He saw his disciples, didn't know him that well, and said, leave your nets. These guys are professional fishermen. They fished every day. They learned it from their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather. And one request, they dropped their nets and follow him. He's the lover of our soul. Peter, I'll die for you. Denies him three times. And yet in his last days, tradition says, he and his wife together, side by side, are crucified, but they didn't want to be crucified in the same position Jesus was, so they crucified him upside down. One look. Of course, Isaiah is going, I will do whatever you want me to do. And you know, I know we struggle with that in terms of God's will sometimes, but I tell you what, once the fight's over, man, throw out the flag. Like go, yes, Lord. Yes. I belong to you. We're all rebellious at heart, and we're going to struggle, and we're going to fight as long as we can and resist as long as we can, but, you know, it's kind of like a, an angry three-year-old who's trying to hit his daddy, and the daddy's just holding his head like this, you know? Yield. Now, look here. We're going to close up in a few minutes, but look at this. So now... He says, verse 9, go and say to this people. Now, this is what Isaiah did not know he was going to do. Go and say to these people, you keep on hearing, but you do not understand. Now, these are words that Jesus quoted. You might want to read it in um, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, um, 21, Jesus said these same words. And in, in what, what we believe is Isaiah was talking about the Lord. When he wrote these things, he was talking about the Lord Jesus because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus said to the Jews who wouldn't believe. So Isaiah had a vision of Christ. John, it's interesting, 12, 21. You keep on hearing, but you do not understand. You keep on seeing, but you do not perceive. Then he says to him, this is what you're gonna do, Isaiah. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In other words, he's saying, because they refuse to believe and repent, they will not believe or repent. Because they refused me over and over and over again to believe and repent, because of that, they won't believe and they won't repent. His judgment was to make them even more rebellious. And he didn't change it. His patience ran out. Then Isaiah, of course, these are his people too. He said, oh Lord, how long? How long do I have to keep preaching this message? It's dark, it's bloody, it's hopeless. How long do I have to do this? And he says, well, until the cities lie waste without an inhabitant, that's all. By the way, the enemy comes in, Babylonian enemy comes in. Every time God's people was judged, he raised up an army a vicious pagan army such as the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and he sent them in to totally take God's people exiled. That was his judgment and penalty. Many were murdered, many were killed. Horrible. Horrible. 
So when he says, how long do I have to do this? He's talking about an exile. He's talking about their towns and their cities being burned to the ground like talent was. I just keep saying that because that was an imagery that we probably should never forget. How long, O Lord, he said, until the cities of my people lie waste without inhabitants and the houses are without people. They're just shells, broken, black, charred shells of a home. And the land is desolate, a desolate waste. And the Lord removes the people far away. That's the exile. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So you're going to preach my message of judgment until there's no one else to preach to. And by the way, this guy, Isaiah, this prophet, who said, woe is me, I'm done, and I'll do anything you want me. He, in Hebrews, it talks about the atrocity, atrocities of how God's people were martyred. Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith. The heroes of our past. It is believed that Isaiah was sawn in two. This one, who would follow the Lord till his death. Tell me where to go and what to do. I'm yours. But look at the last verse. As always, when we see the darkness of judgment and wrath that God never wanted to execute, but his people spit in his face and mocked him over their idolatrous ways. He gave them an option. Remember I showed you that? He then says this. And though a tenth remain in it, in other words, 10% of his people are going to remain in the desolate land. We call them a remnant, meaning they're still the few people of God. 90% were taken into exile or murdered, taken away. He said, I'm going to leave 10% of my people in the land. Guaranteed, they were the few that still followed and loved Jehovah. But it will be burned again. They burned it once, they're going to burn it again. My people will be there, they'll survive. It's going to be burned again. Then he says something very interesting, like a terebinth or an oak. So these are two types of trees that can be cut down, burned, and there's still life in them. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. So here's, uh, for those of you that have logging uh, tendencies or relationships or experience, you fall a tree and it's dead. Shoots start coming up out of the snow. Like a terebinth or oak, my people, like a stump remains when it is felled, holy, the holy seed, my people will come up like shoots from what appears to be dead. Now, he ends on grace again. Again. He ends on hope. This is amazing. A little green shoot. Nothing but black stumps. Desolation in one little green shoot representing God's people 
who will come back strong, and we're part of them, right here. And we'll live with them forever. There's still hope. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word. So strong. Interesting, just in our culture, very interesting, the terminology and the ways of antiquity, very fascinating. But we got the point. We got the message. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be broken and repentant like Isaiah. We know that first day when we did, we've not been the same since, but there's still times, Lord, where we need to be broken again and again and again and again and repentant again and again and again. We feel comfortable in your grace and your forgiveness, but Lord, we know how wild our heart can be. Pray that you help us stay tender through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We long for your appearing, and for those who we thought about tonight during the message, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, children, adult and otherwise, oh Lord, by your mercy and grace, bring them to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen.